Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Once the program starts running, you see the kids, you see them interacting, having a good time, um, and responding to the information that they're giving and absorbing it. You know, that's, that's the win for us, is if we can give them knowledge and give them resources and things they can utilize to help be more successful and better live in an oppressive community or an oppressive society, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we have an inside look at the Colin Kaepernick Know Your Rights camp that was held on the south side of Chicago this last Saturday. I was there. I'm going to give you the entire inside report, followed by a short interview that I did with Kaepernick himself. It was an interview we did right there on the site, and we are going to play it for you on this podcast. And then... After all of that, I'm going to have one of the smartest people I know about the intersection of sports, politics, history, and black liberation, and that is Professor Lewis Moore from all the way in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're going to give Lewis a call, and he is going to interrogate me about the weekend with Colin Kaepernick, who he is, and where he stands in the historical continuum of the black athlete. But first, before I say anything about any of this. There's been a bit of a news explosion this past week about Colin Kaepernick that I want to speak about big time. And that is the story that's come out. Uh, It's come out in the columns of Peter King. It's come out big time on Fox Sports from the mouths of people like Jason Whitlock. And it's this, frankly, disinformation campaign about Kaepernick. Now, having been someone who has spoken with Colin Kaepernick, I want to address some of what's being said about him and about the possibility of him playing in the National Football League this year because there are just straight-up lies out there. So first and foremost, in the Peter King story, there are unnamed sources who are saying that Colin Kaepernick may be done with football because he wants to focus his life on social activism. This is not true. I can tell you this from having spoken to him. He is training every day. He's in the best shape of his life. He's positive. He loves the sport. He wants to play. Second thing, and what I'm about to say doesn't come from talking to Colin Kaepernick, but from talking to all the people around him, his manager, trainer, people close to him in his life, they debunked a series of lies. One, he is not asking for a starting role. That's a disinformation story that's out there. Two, he's not asking for 5 to $10 million a year. That's a disinformation story that's out there. Three, there have not been three teams that have called him and asked him for meetings. That is a disinformation story. He has gotten no meetings thus far about joining any team. And four, this idea that's out there right now that he somehow uh, wants to walk away from the sport for some reason or another. It's simply not true. The guy wants to play. Ignore the disinformation. And you know why all this disinformation is coming out? I'm going to tell you why it's coming out. It's coming out because this is starting to become embarrassing 
for the National Football League. Colin Kaepernick is being blackballed for his politics. This is evidently clear to anybody and everybody. It is just as plain as the nose on your face. And this was much easier to do when people like Tony Romo and Jay Cutler were still out there looking for jobs. But now both those guys were in the broadcasting booth, and here's Colin Kaepernick still looking for work. There's Blaine Gabbert, a person whose statistics pale compared to Colin Kaepernick, who has a job. There's Mark Sanchez with a job. There's Josh McCown with a job. And there's Colin Kaepernick not even getting a meeting. The optics of this start to look bad for the National Football League because the whole NFL thing is this idea that there's some kind of meritocracy. And anybody who can help you win, that's the person who's going to be on your team. And what we're seeing is that there's something that matters more to the NFL ownership class than winning. And that is making sure that their athletes know their role and shut their mouths. And so keeping Colin Kaepernick off a team, what does that do? It's a shot across the bow at any athlete who thinks that they have the right to not only play, but actually be a political person. So if you want to understand these Know Your Rights camps that are staged by Colin Kaepernick and these camps that exist to speak directly to the black, brown, and economically disadvantaged youth that are invited through local community organizations to speak to young people about history, nutrition, legal rights, and financial literacy, you have to know that it might start with Colin Kaepernick, but it doesn't end with him. He has a young multiracial network of roughly 50 Know Your Rights organizers and volunteers who he flies in from all over the country to handle logistics at the event site and make sure that the day runs smoothly. One volunteer, someone I saw just hanging out in a Know Your Rights t-shirt at the DuSable Museum on the south side of Chicago, was Kaepernick's San Francisco 49ers teammate Eric Reed, who said to me that he was there to support Colin, and he said, I want to show these kids that there are people who want them to succeed despite how they may feel when they go to school. But I also came here to learn. The day started with breakfast, eggs, yogurt, biscuits, and fruit for the 200 young people who were at the door by 9 a.m. And remember, this is on a Saturday. A 12-year-old named Damien gave up the opening game of his baseball season to attend because he said to me, I want to play today, but knowing my history is more important. Now, in addition to the breakfast and lunches provided, young people were given t-shirts that read Know Your Rights on the front, and on the back, the shirts listed the following 10 points. One, you have the right to be free. Two, you have the right to be healthy. Three, you have the right to be brilliant. Four, you have the right to be safe. Five, you have the right to be loved. Six, you have the right to be courageous. Seven, you have the right to be alive. Eight, you have the right to be trusted. Nine, you have the right to be educated. Ten, you have the right to know your rights. The free breakfasts and the 10 points both derive with serious intent from the political legacy of the Black Panther Party. I spoke to Amir Loggins, who's a young writer and lecturer at Cal Berkeley who helped develop the Know Your Rights curriculum as well as the 10 points, and he made that very clear, saying it was extended and connected to all non-institutional educational programs that go out into communities, end quote. Now, being in Chicago, the particulars of that city's history and policing were central to the day's agenda. After breakfast, Kaepernick introduced the day to the 200 young people, saying, We are here to uplift each other. We also have great speakers and guests who are here for no other reason than that they love you and want to support you. He then brought out one of the great men of Chicago, hip-hop icon Common, who flew in just for the camp and stayed the entire six-hour day. Here's a little clip of what Common said. Around the time of September of last year, I saw Colin Kaepernick standing up for us as a people. And I would get interviewed and asked, what do I think about that? And I said, man, that's one of the most courageous acts I've seen come from anybody in the spotlight since Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali had always been one of my heroes. So I said, Colin Kaepernick is one of my heroes now. Because I'm inspired by someone that would take their platform and sacrifice it on that level. But it's not only just Colin now. We have a team. He has a team. The I Know My Rights team and family who've been contributing towards going around our country, 
and educating our youth on how we should be as young men and women in this country, how we can exist, not only to fight, but to elevate, to elevate and reach our goals and our dreams, to go out there and be the kings and queens that we was created to be, to go out there and be the scientists, the athletes, the, the musicians, the doctors, the leaders, the architects that we were created to be. And I just want to give it up for, for each and everybody working with I Know My Rights and also give it up for the mentors here. You all mentors, the mentors from, from Common Ground who've worked, like the mentors who work with all our youth and the parents who brought their kids today. They're making a statement. I want each and every one of you as youth, as our kids, to know that we care, that we care for you, and that's why we're here. And, it, and because you all care enough to be here, I'm expecting you to not only listen and feel what you feel and express yourself and ask questions, but as you leave from here, you take your notes and, and, you, and you, you live this, I want you to go out in our city and help your friends, help people that you don't know. Spread the message for people who haven't been here. Later in the day, Kaepernick returned to the stage to underline the message and he said, we're trying to show you what you're dealing with so you can combat it. And then he introduced the next speaker saying, we are now bringing out the legal defense team so you can protect yourself, protect your family, and protect your communities. So out then came Guillermo Gutierrez and Charles Jones from First Defense Legal Aid with their message that Chicago is the false confession capital of the world. They said that the future of some people in that room could depend on knowing their rights when approached by law enforcement and hammered home what to say if stopped by police. They said, first and foremost, you always have the right to ask, am I free to go? That is your constitutional right. And if they say no, you have the right to say, I do not consent to be searched. If you don't say those words, they can and will search you. Later, Kaepernick came out and reinforced this point saying, so if an officer stops you, what do you say? And the students all said as one, am I free to go? So much more happened throughout the day. Sessions on financial literacy, sessions on nutrition, sessions on black history and politics. And honestly, I can't get to it all right now. Please go to my article at The Nation magazine. You can find a link for it in the description of this podcast if you want an even more full running down of everything that happened at Know Your Rights Camp Chicago. But I do want to talk a little bit how Kaepernick ended the day because he ended it by taking the stage and speaking to the students about his own journey towards political consciousness. He talked about growing up as the adopted son in an all-white home, and he said, I wasn't born into a culture that I identified with. I love my family to death. I love my parents. They're the most amazing people I know. But culturally, I still didn't identify with them. When I looked in the mirror, I knew I was different. And being able to grow and learn what it meant to be an African man in America is a different context than just being a black man. So for me, the growth through my knowledge and through some of the research that my woman helped me do, I was able to identify with myself and with my community differently. I grew up my whole life thinking I was from Milwaukee and that was the end of it. What you're taught in school is our existence in America was as slaves through segregation to where we're at now. And we're supposed to accept that as a better reality to slavery. But what I was able to do with my lady was trace my ancestry, my DNA, my lineage back to Ghana, Nigeria, back to the Ivory Coast, and put it into a different context of my existence and my reality was more than being a slave. My existence and reality was as an African man. And in that context comes a different culture. A culture of kings, queens, pharaohs. We had empires. We had our own civilizations, our own societies. Realize that what your existence is right now can be greater when you realize that the ceiling of what you're capable of is greater. 
So don't think that what you're living right now is the best you can do. Don't think that this is normal. It's not. This existence that we live right now isn't normal. It's oppressive. And it's intentionally oppressive. And what that did for me in being able to identify with Africa and give me a higher sense of consciousness, a higher sense of who I was and what it meant to be a community. Knowing that you're my sister, you're my brother, and we're all in this together, and we all have to change this together. Because once again, no one else is gonna change this for us but us. And we have to realize that. Every person in this room is here to help you and support you. You don't have any enemies in here. Every person in here is on your side. And going back to some of the conversations we had earlier about how you talk, how you look. I love the afro. I love the natural hair. That's why I grew my hair out. I had to identify with my culture. It was something that for me allowed me to represent my culture and every person that saw me would have to identify me with my culture and not just as a black man in America. And the importance for that to me is something that I wanted to be able to share with all of you. So when you leave today, we're gonna to give you backpacks and in your backpacks, you're gonna have ancestry DNA kits so you can trace your ancestry as well. The students exploded with joy upon hearing this. I was told there was a similar reaction in Oakland and New York. Then he said, I love you guys. I appreciate you. Build with each other because you will be this community moving forward. Afterwards, I spoke to Kaepernick at some length. As I said at the start of this podcast, he talked about how hard he was training for the 2017 season, and he believes he's going to find an NFL home with an optimism that both his hard work and stellar 2016 year will be rewarded. But we kept the conversation focused on the camp. He was on cloud 10, and I want to play a little bit so you can hear what he was saying about what the Know Your Rights group had just pulled off. I'm looking at your team here. What's the compare and contrast of this group you're with and like being on a sports team and that sense of camaraderie and whatnot? Um, do you feel it, that? Do you, do you get that from this space, that same kind of feeling? Yeah, it is a sense of camaraderie. We're building toward a common goal. I mean, that's ultimately what sports is. And in this space, we're just trying to do it in a way to help people, to help communities that are oppressed. Mm -hmm. And the fact that everybody has that same foundation of their moral standards and the values they have in people is important and I think it shows through not only the work that everyone does but it shows in their interactions with the kids and the interactions they have with the community members. You can build with each other, you can love each other and ultimately that has to be the foundation of how you build up your community because in oppressed communities no one's going to help them except themselves mm -hmm. otherwise they wouldn't be oppressed right but how do you feel like it went today uh i thought it was amazing yeah, uh, i did too you know every time we do an event leading up to it there's always that little bit of nerves that come in right. all right do we have everything in line is everything <laughs> you know are all the t's crossed the i's mm -hmm. dotted um but you know, once the, once the program starts running, you see the kids, you see them interacting, having a good time, um, and responding to the information that they're giving and absorbing it. You know, that's, that's the win for us, is if we can give them knowledge and give them resources and things they can utilize to help be more successful and better live in an oppressive community or an oppressive society. You know, that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help any way we can. And even if we're only here for a day, can we give you resources that are in your community and make those connections mm. for you where you have a network that can support you? Mm. And how you feeling, man? You happy these days? How you feeling? You at peace? Uh, I'm very happy. Yeah. You know, it's, it shows, man. You look like, man, like you have no weight on your shoulders right now. No, not, none at all. <laughs> like you fly away if you weren't being held down by gravity. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. It's, 
you know, to me, this is an exciting thing. And, you know, being able to work with kids and have kids respond and see the excitement that they have. And, you know, in situations that are very adverse, to see them have that hope and realizing that they can take control of their future and help take control of their communities and build with each other. You know, those are things that are very exciting to see because you start to see things coming to fruition and you start to see them making those connections of, you know what, I may have been told one thing my whole life, but these people are telling me something different and they're showing me something different that I haven't seen. And okay, can I go back and build that with my community, with my friends, with my family? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's that's exciting to see. That. Mm -hmm. Damn, you just look like somebody who has sort of like found a path, you know, like like God's just kissed you on the head and said, "This is what you got to do, man." And it's a beautiful thing to see. It's uh, you know, very liberating, a very yeah. free, free thing to feel. Um, right on. And it's hard to explain. Yeah. And last question, if there for my for my listeners, for people who listen to this, if there's one book they should read that you would love for everybody to have to read, what would it be? It would be the autobiography of Malcolm X. That was one of the books that I read that completely changed my outlook on things and having a greater understanding of what he was trying to accomplish and him willing to fight for truth and justice regardless of any shape or form it took. Um, you know, he was willing to shed any mental shackles that he had and shed any, you know, previous uh, thoughts that he had that showed themselves to not be true on his journey in search of that truth. Mm. And being able to find his truth and stay on that path with the conviction that he had that ultimately led to his assassination. That's, to me, he was the definition of a man. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for all the work that you've done. That's, I'm glad you're seeing it. To me, that representation in another field is very important. And to see it not just come from a black community yeah. is something that, you know, to me, I admire. And I, I appreciate so much. And I know a lot of other people appreciate it that may not be able to tell you that. So thank you. I appreciate that very much. Now, one of the things that we did not talk about was whether he was being politically blackballed by the League for his political ideas and activism. And honestly, there was no need. After spending the day with Colin Kaepernick, all I could think about was a quote from Bill Russell in 1967 when he was asked how Muhammad Ali was coping with being stripped of the heavyweight title. And Bill Russell said, I'm not worried about Muhammad Ali. I'm worried about the rest of us. I'm not worried about Colin Kaepernick. As for the rest of us, whew, we got work to do. And now a quick word about the other podcast that is sponsored by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. This week, the great author Rick Perlstein, the author of Nixonland, talks about what we didn't understand about Donald Trump. It's a mea culpa for historians of American politics. And Heather Ann Thompson talks about the Attica prison uprising of 1971 and its legacy. Her book, Blood in the Water, has won all kinds of awards. Start making sense. Political talk without the boring parts. New episodes every Thursday at thenation.com. And now, back to Edge of Sports. And now on the line, I have an associate professor of history at Grand Valley State University, author of the forthcoming book, I Fight for a Living, about boxing and black manhood, and also We Will Win the Day, about the black athlete and the civil rights movement, the one and only Lewis Moore. So, Professor Moore, great to have you on the line. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, and thanks for your wonderful work on, on Colin Kaepernick. Oh, thanks so much. So your thoughts, sir. I mean, I know you study this stuff for a living. I know that your mind is often rooted in the vagaries of history. Colin Kaepernick, of course, in the present tense. Where do you view him in this historical continuum, in this heritage of the political black athlete? 
I I put Cap towards the top. Um, And it's hard to say that because everything he's done is probably within almost the last year, even less than a year. But it's about what he's doing. Um, And what I say when I mean that is not only is he he talking about it, right? So he talks a good game. He he talks about police brutality. He talks about human rights. He talks about black rights. But he's also getting involved. Um, And I think that's what separates these top-tier activist athletes from the people who, who talk about human rights and civil rights. Um, and I, what stands out to me the most about Kaepernick is his involvement in the grassroots era, uh, area, um, situating himself, using his platform, right, to, to get involved, but also taking a step back and understanding that he, you know, he, he probably lives in the hills in the Bay Area. He's not going to live in these communities. And these people in these communities know what's best for these communities. So his role is, is going to be to, to help them out. Um, and for me, that's similar to Jim Brown, what Jim Brown was doing mid-60s, early 70s, using uh, the community action programs from the LBJ administration or what people called CAPS, um, also using the Ford Foundation to, to build um, leaders in the community. So guys like Jim Brown or, you know, Lou Alcindor, Kareem, when he's working with them, would go into community, help build leadership, and they're doing that because they understand they're not going to always be there. You know, they're going to wish the athletes will cut and run. Let, let me throw one compare and contrast with Jim Brown, other, and we'll, we'll put the, the personal lives on a parallel track because uh, Colin Kaepernick, I mean, is someone who, by my observations, like clearly um, embraces uh, female leadership and anti-sexist ideas. And, you know, that's, you know, Jim Brown – uh, you can't say that in a, in even not excusing it by his era. Like you just really can't say that about Jim Brown's politics, as you well know, with your writings on manhood and toxic masculinity and how it plays into black liberation struggles. But the other thing, and I just would love your thoughts on this, if you agree, disagree, what have you, is that Jim Brown, the best of Jim Brown in terms of his political activism, was always rooted in this idea of people getting, black people, getting their share of the American dream and this idea of how we develop, um, how the black community develops itself to be able to seize that dream. And you would often invoke like Asian communities and Jewish communities and, and things of that nature. Kaepernick speaks very openly about oppression and structural oppression and about like, yeah, okay, there may be some personal things you can do with your life in terms of nutrition and financial literacy, but when it comes down to it, if you're not fighting this systemic oppression, we're just going to end up beating our heads against a wall. Is that a fair characterization on that I'm making of Jim Brown, and do you also see that in Kaepernick? Yeah, no, I I think it's fair, right? Um, Jim Brown, you know, believes in green power, which is to say he believes in capitalism. Um, And I think the brilliance of Kaepernick, right? And, and, and you get to see this with him in real time because he's learning this kind of on the fly, um, is that capitalism is part of the problem, um, right? Capitalism is what creates these racial inequalities. Capitalism is what creates these, these sexist inequalities. Um, and he's doing stuff to break that down. That is to say, like, if, if you're going to be Jim Brown, green power doesn't eliminate the problems of capitalism. Um, so some of the critiques of like green power or black power in an economic fashion was that look eventually you're still going to exploit people and and in general those people you're going to exploit are going to be black people um but and that's just the way the system's set up Kaepernick is working away from the system so in that way he's more of in that like when we categorize like revolt of the black athletes he's more in that mold right because he doesn't want anything not to say he doesn't want anything to do with that system because he's deeply embedded in that system because of his NFL contract and how he grew up. But he's also to break down that system um, that capitalism creates. Whereas Brown, you see him really em- em- embracing it, believes that that is the way black people can gain power through, through economic power, similarly to what uh, Jackie Robinson did later on, like mid-1960s, right, when he creates or helps fund the Freedom Bank. Um, and Jackie's an integrationist too, right? And, and he's just different than Jim Brown, who's not an integrationist. It just shows you how complicated. Sorry to interrupt you, Professor, but I just want to point out for the audience that just shows you how oftentimes complicated 
the politics of what we sometimes refer to as the black freedom struggle could be because Jim Brown was resolutely not an integrationist and was sharply critical of Dr. King and the civil rights movement while Jackie Robinson marched with Dr. King and yet they're both on the same side when it comes to we need to develop independent economic power in the black community. Right. No. So yeah, Jim, what Jim, Jim Brown shocked a lot of people. I think he has this article. I want to say it's Ebony, December issue, 1964, January issue, 1964, when he comes out and says like, he's not with all this, you know, MLK stuff. Right. I um, mean, that shocks a lot of people because that's where most of them are at. And when he says that, he's talking about he's really channeling uh, channeling uh, Malcolm X, right? Um, now he's not in a wise, not Nation of Islam uh, member, uh, but he still believes in something about kind of separation and economics, right? And Jackie's not that, but Jackie still believes in black political power. So this is all really complicated stuff. Nobody is the same, uh, but what they all want is freedom and equality. It's just how you get there. Now, speaking of Malcolm X, uh, you and I started a discussion over uh, over Twitter that I would love to bring out into the open for this audience. Um, start with uh, w- your observation about Malcolm X and these athletes, and then I, I want to throw in with my theory about it, and then I'd love your response. Yeah, so I brought that up based on your um, Cap Arden, uh, article, the Know Your Rights article, the one where he gives these kids a Malcolm X book, and to me, I said, wow. Bill Russell he wrote a lot about admiring Malcolm X, even more so than uh, Martin Luther King. He admires them both, but there was something about Malcolm. Jim Brown, the same way. Ali, obviously, Kareem. And then Craig Hodges in his book, Long Shot, talks about growing up admiring Malcolm X. And for me, I was looking at that. Specifically the autobiography. Right, the autobiography. So for Craig Hodges, it's, yeah, that's a good point. For Craig Hodges, it's the autobiography of Malcolm X. For these other guys, um, to use this term again, it's in real time, right? Russell is struggling. Russell and Jim Brown are struggling with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King in, in real time uh, when there are, are political consequences to do that openly. Uh, Hodges is, is learning about him, obviously, because you know, Malcolm is dead at this point, so he's growing up learning about him. Same as Kaepernick, right? I, I believe he, he read the autobiography and it just hits them. And I think it hits everybody who reads autobiographies touched by this. And I was making the comment that there's a link there, that all these guys who become activists, most of them who become activist act- athletes, there's something about Malcolm X that just pulls them. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I'll put Atan Thomas and uh, Mahmoud abdul Rauf in this category when I've spoken to them and when I've asked that question, and Michael Bennett as well of the Seahawks. When I say, what's a book that you have read that shifted you or that had a profound influence on you? The autobiography of Malcolm X becomes this touchstone, and I've always like had this sort of theory. I've never articulated it fully, um, but part of it, to me about why is it that Malcolm X, like the black athletes, autobiography of Malcolm X, what is it about that book that not only touches them but pushes them to be public with what they think? Some of it, I think, absolutely relates to, you know, like Ossie Davis said about Malcolm X, you know, Malcolm is our manhood. You know, he's this figure of incredibly uh, powerful black masculinity. And if you're an athlete, you're already in that world. And masculinity in athletics usually gets translated into something rather toxic. And Malcolm gives a counter of that, where it's like you get to hold on to your masculinity and express it for positive and community-oriented ends. I think that that's the obvious answer for why they find Malcolm X so riveting. Um, but, uh, and, and, but another side of it, too, that I think we don't talk about enough And then, of course, um, the anti-racist politics of Malcolm X is resonating with them because that's what they're grappling with when they're picking it up and reading it. But the other part of it that that I think about a lot is that Malcolm X is somebody, maybe more than anybody else in American history, who very, very publicly changed their views about how they saw the world under an incredibly bright spotlight – with threats to his life made against himself and his family, he was willing to stand up and say, I used to believe this, and now I believe this. Like the chrysalis effect 
of effectively in the public eye becoming a different person and becoming like something even greater because of that. And I often thought like maybe for athletes that's so similar because they're so in the public eye. And then by coming forward and being political, you are effectively telling the world, I am not who you thought I was and you have to reckon with me as who I am. And I could just see the autobiography being an incredible uh, touchstone, an incredible support system when athletes are reckoning with this idea that they're going to risk everything they've worked for to be true to their self. Oh, yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. Um, all of it. And I, I'd also say, too, I think part of it while we're talking, I was thinking, is, is these athletes, they're at the highest, like you said, at the top of their level, but they're also in an integrated world. And what they realize, like, so these athletes in the 50s and 60s, integration for them is not the greatest thing in the world, right? Bill Russell plays integrated life, right? And he's, there's places, you know, he's, him and his Celtics teammates have to boycott a few events. Um, he gets his house shattered, right? Not, I don't think there's a professional athlete who grew up in the late 40s and 50s and, and the early 60s who easily was able to buy a house in an integrated neighborhood. Um, so, and, and I could just, because I want to underline the point you just said, just in case there are any listeners out there who don't know this, that when Bill Russell was playing in Boston, uh, when Boston was referred to, and I think this has a very 21st century resonance as a flea market of racism, uh, someone broke into Bill Russell's house and defecated in the man's house. And it was so interesting. Like Part of that story that I always think about sometimes, probably because I'm, I'm white, I think about this, is when his teammate Tommy Heinsohn heard about it. Like Tommy Heinsohn was so shocked and appalled that he like didn't understand why Bill Russell wasn't like actually going out and just killing people. Because he had never let and he had no he had no Tommy Heinsohn had no frame of reference that that could happen to somebody. Right, and it happened I would, it happened some form. It happened to to all of them, right? Um after the 48 World Series, Larry Doby couldn't buy a house in his hometown of Patterson, New Jersey. Like, the mayor had to step in. Ten years later, it happens to Willie Mays in San Francisco. Uh, Floyd Patterson, eventually the heavyweight champion of the world and a leading right, <clears throat> activist athlete who – I was reading a newspaper today from 1961, and the black sports editor was calling him. He put him at, the, at that time at the top of the list above Jackie Robinson. He's ranking him. He puts him above Jackie Robinson, and it's because Floyd Patterson fights this integrated fight in Miami um, and makes sure the stands are integrated, and he also gives $10,000 to the NAACP. And for him, it's like, this is it. He, he beats Jackie. Um, but he had to sell his house in New Jersey, the heavyweight champion of the world, because his white neighbors did not want to live next to him. Um, and so, you know, Floyd never goes, Patterson never goes that Malcolm X route. But others, I think it touches them, like, being in an integrated world, being at the top of the game, and still, like if you're a baseball player, every spring you have to go, if your spring train is not in Arizona, you have to go to the south, and you have to live in separate facilities. And I think, you know, guys like Kurt Flood, right, they won't wash his clothes with his white teammates. Like how is that not going to, you know, you know, affect them when it comes to things like integration? Hmm. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great point as well. And so many, and I think this is the point that you're trying to make, is that this is um, not just a past issue, but a 2017 issue. So it's like if you're in an, an athlete and you're in this very integrated space and you're LeBron James, for example, and your business team is referred to by Phil Jackson as a posse, it's almost like a reminder that no matter how big you get, you are who we think you are. And even if you're not who they think you are, they are telling you, you are who we think you are. And I think that's where, you know, Malcolm X, like it does have this resonance, like, wow, it's like this disrespect, even though I'm at the top of this profession. Right. And, and, and on that point, too, our college athletes, right, are learning this. Um, they've always known this, right? That's what that, the revolt was about. Um, but you know, 2015 with Missouri, Oklahoma, and then last year with those athletes, like the young man from Nebraska, right? He, he stood up, right? He deals with, like, I, I teach on a college campus. I deal with kids. All my, there's not a black student I haven't met who, who hasn't, like, dealt with racism, whether it's, like, 
in your face, like overtly or the microaggressions. And, they, you know, it's very hard for them. Um, and that young kid from Nebraska, who's a star, he's a hero, 90,000 people cheer his name. But the moment he decided to use his education, he said, look, I read W.E.B. Du Bois and read Malcolm X, and this is how I feel, right, in support of Kaepernick. He got hate mail. Um, people wanted him off, you know, off the team to lose his scholarship, you know, people calling him the N-word. A couple weeks later, they're playing Wisconsin. And in the stands, right, there's the guy with the costume with Obama, right, with the noose around his neck. Um, so what these guys are going through in the 60s is similar to what they're going through today. He said, I pulled up this quote um, from Jackie Robinson. Um, he says, as long as the Negro is humble and submissive, he is approved by the majority group. But when he demands his rights, he is regarded by many as arrogant and a troublemaker. Um, and that, I quoted that, that must have been his auto, one of his, so not his autobiography um, from the 70s, but I quoted that in 19, I have it on my list, from 1959. So he must have said something, right, he said that in 59 because um, a black reporter from New Orleans is using that to talk about black fans um, standing up in New Orleans and really battling uh, segregation at that time. So he's saying, look, they like us when we're humble and we be quiet and we accept segregation. And now they're mad at us. Um, <clears throat> for your listeners, what's going on in New Orleans at that time? Uh, New Orleans passes a uh, sports ban, a uh, sports ban in 1956. And um, also at the same time, the year before, the minor league baseball team kicks. They have five black players before they even play, but they, they get rid of them. And so black fans just start boycotting. Um, they boycott the baseball team, and they put them under within four years. Uh, so the baseball team has to fold. Um, they start boycotting, obviously, the Sugar Bowl. They boycott. They're, eventually, they start boycotting boxing matches. And so they're really politically active as black fans. Um, and, of course, the community's mad at them, right, because their dollars – are no longer, you know, accepting segregation. And that's the whole point of it, right? And so he's saying, like, look, when we were humble and just coming to these segregated events, you were fine with us. But the moment we start to speak up, now you're mad. And that Jackie Robinson quote, this is a perfect place for us to, to end because that Jackie Robinson quote goes absolutely perfectly with this essay that Nigel Hayes just graduated from Wisconsin uh, basketball player that he just wrote at the Players Tribune called Don't Just Shut Up and Play. It speaks to exactly what you're talking about, Professor. Yeah, and I love Nigel Hayes, too. He's like, and he better he better get an opportunity in the, on the next level, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's almost like Kaepernick is becoming a verb. Like, let's see if they Kaepernick him. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm worried about. Um, well, that's the other question, too, from a historical perspective, is we know this can cut one of two ways. Like, he... Colin Kaepernick can become a martyr for this cause of the political athlete, or he can become, I should say, his inability to play could become, like with Craig Hodges, like a silencer. Right, no, and, and we've seen it, you know, we've seen it both ways, right? So when, when Jackie was, people got mad at Jackie when he was talking about integration, uh, but ultimately it worked, right? And I think that's because the country wanted to feel good about themselves and, and you know, on a global level. It doesn't mean integration came. Uh, but but it worked. People were mad at him, but you know he didn't. He lost some, but he didn't lose his career. Um, 1960, Marquette Grant uh, sings the national anthem. Once it's August 1960, Cleveland Indians sings the national anthem. At the end of it, he says, "You know this land's not so free. I can't even go to Mississippi." And they suspend him from two, for two weeks at the end of the season. Comes back the next year, everything's fine. Everybody forgot about that. Uh, but nobody forgets about what Tommy Smith and John Carlos have done. It took them forever to, to just get, you know, part of their lives back. You, you know, Craig Hodges, what he said in his book, it took him until Phil Jackson was with the Lakers to get back into the league as an assistant coach. And I, you get the feeling that's what the NFL wants. They want to send that message. Um, and I don't – like, they could do it with Cap, but I'm not sure they could do it with everybody. Um, and that's why I like the Bennett brothers. Mm. Yeah, me too. Because I don't think they're going to stop. Right, I like those guys. I don't think they're going to stop. No, I don't think they're stopping anytime soon, except they're both in their 30s. So That's the, that's the other thing, too, yeah. 
And that's, you know what, it's like, I don't think they're going to stop, but as we all know, playing in the NFL is a week-in, week-out job. Uh, so let's hopefully um, folks in, even younger than them step up. I mean, and I'm, I'm hopeful about that, but as we all know, as you know certainly, the question of athletic activism is vitally dependent on what happens off the football field. Right, right, right. Um, and you just hope that in that, and one day, right, you hope that they don't have to be activists, right? They could just, they could just literally just play. Um, but, you know, today's obviously not that day. Um, so maybe. Yeah, and, and I would also, and I always try to do this with my work, you know, it's like let's look at people like Chris Long refusing to go to Trump's White House. It's like if you are against racism, bigotry, oppression, this is your burden, doesn't it? It's not about the color of your skin. It's about recognizing that there's injustice and doing something about it. Right. And that's, well, that is it fair to say that that's the part we haven't really seen, right? Um, if we're historically looking at this, the white athlete really stepping out um, and, and getting involved, uh, carrying some of this burden. Well, certainly not as a group. I mean, you had, I mean, we can talk about some things. Like, we can talk about, like, the Harvard crew team hooking up. Smith and Carlos with the Olympic Project for Human Rights badges and writing that letter together. Or we can talk about Jim Bouton wanting to stand uh, against apartheid South Africa and stand with Dennis Brutus or Bill Lee speaking out against racism in Boston and speaking out for marijuana legalization. But these are, given the sheer percentage of white athletes, for goodness sakes, you know, this is these are very small potatoes in the larger context of things. Right, right, yeah. So it's like the individual, but nothing, nothing. There's no big movement right now that just says, or ever been, right? Like we're going to help this cause out. Um, and that's part of it. And I think you get that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have the individual of conscious, and and not the collectivization of responsibility. That's exactly right. Hey, Professor, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. I literally could talk to you for 67 hours. Um, by hour 68, it might be a little, you know, boring. Well, well thank, thanks for having me. <laughs> but, um, but seriously, thank you so much for coming on, providing much-needed depth to this discussion. Yeah. All right, thank you for having me. All right, be well, sir. All right, thank you, bye. That was Lewis Moore, Associate Professor of History at Grand Valley State University. His Twitter feed is indispensable. It'll be in the description of this podcast, but I'll tell you right now, it's also at Lou Moore and then the number 12. And now, a quick word from The Nation magazine. The Edge of Sports podcast is brought to you by The Nation magazine. Subscribe, please, at www.thenation.com slash subscribe. This magazine is becoming indispensable in the age of Trump. We are reporting on voter suppression. We are reporting on whether or not this presidency is cracking up. And we are reporting on resistance movements, the kinds of things that do not get reported on in the breathless 24-hour yipping head news cycle. Support real journalism. Support The Nation magazine. Thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show that we call the Just Stand Up Award and the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. The Just Stand Up Award this week, you know, I really hate giving it to the same person on more than two or three or four occasions because it makes it seem like these are the only people speaking out. But I had to give it this week to former Wisconsin Badger star Nigel Hayes, basketball player supreme, because he just wrote a killer essay at the Players' Tribune, and this is exactly the kind of essay that dovetails so perfectly with what we do here on the Edge of Sports, and it's called Don't Just Shut Up and Play. And you know what? My co-producer, David Tigaboo, is going to read a section of it that we all think is particularly poignant. This is David Tigaboo as Nigel Hayes. It's funny how sports is one of the only areas in which it's controversial to speak your mind. We don't tell doctors to hold their tongues about their beliefs and stick to medicine. 
We don't tell firemen to stick to fighting fires at the expense of standing up for what they think is right. We don't even tell students to stick to being students and keep our mouths shut about the things that matter in society. If you look closely at the history of social movements for positive change all over the world, you'll notice that the college student has been the catalyst for some of modern history's major social changes. In fact, one of the reasons you go to college, correct me if I'm wrong, is to learn how to think critically about your role in society. So how do we judge athletes by different standards? My challenge to the class of 2017 is this. Never accept it when someone says, just shut up and play, or whatever the equivalent is in your field. Don't accept it when they say, stay in your lane. Let's use all possible lanes. Let's create new lanes. Each of us is more than just the job we do for a few hours a day, whether we play basketball or not. The paradox of education is precisely this, James Baldwin wrote, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. Thank you, Wisconsin, for helping me learn that. Oh, and one last thing. We really need to come up with a plan to pay student athletes. Wait, you thought I wasn't going to mention that? It shouldn't even be a controversial notion. After all, I'm a finance major. It's just the simple law of supply and demand sprinkled with principles of the American market economy. Isn't it interesting that collegiate athletics is one of the only American industries that doesn't feel the need to abide by those same rules? Psst, I learned that in college while playing basketball. So with that, my fellow classmates, let's do this. Let's graduate. Truly, thanks to everyone. Much love on Wisconsin. That was David Tigabu as Nigel Hayes with his terrific essay, Don't Just Shut Up and Play. If you want to read the entire essay, check out the link in the description of this podcast. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award is something I've already said, but I want to underline it in bold neon. Just sit down to all media members carrying water of disinformation for the NFL owners about Colin Kaepernick. Big five. This is what you got to remember. No, he's not asking for a ton of money. No, he's not asking for a starting job. No, he hasn't been called by teams. No, he's not a bad locker room person. No, he didn't walk away from his money in San Francisco. That's another thing you hear all the time. Like, why did he walk away from his contract? The 49ers told him that they did not want to resign him. And so he left voluntarily rather than getting cut. Why? Because he thought it would give him more time to find another team. That hasn't worked out so well. And it just shows you how earnestly Colin Kaepernick was approaching this process and how much he wants to play this game. Okay, just sit your ass down, media members carrying water. If we've learned nothing from this election year, you don't do any good by being a damn stenographer for the powerful and the privileged. Now we have the Edge of Sports podcast listener calls. We love getting these folks. 401-426-3343. Let's listen to a couple of them. Hi, Dave. This is Michael Shaw from Reston, Virginia. I'm 71 years old, and I used to be a big NFL fan. I grew up watching games and perusing statistics. I played in high school. My interest gradually lessened, and I got to the point where I decided that the league's myriad problems were so bad that I could no longer tolerate them. Essentially, I decided that the NFL runs so counter to my political and social worldviews that I would be a hypocrite if I continued to follow the league. I have not watched an NFL game for four seasons, and I've worked hard to never read or see anything about games, players, or the league itself, unless there is something that talks about the bad parts of the game or about the players who take progressive actions. I always listen to your podcasts and read your writings, and I'm so grateful for the actions of players like 
Colin Kaepernick and the Trump white daughters. Thank you so much for that call, Michael. Yeah, that that seems to be uh, the sentiment that we're getting with a lot of these calls. So let's hear another. This is Danny Boylan. Um, so you asked about people being done with football or, or still being a fan, and I'm done. I broke up with football on October 1st of 2014. And I'm going to read you the Facebook message I wrote in September of that year to explain why. October marks the start of the kind of shamus breast cancer awareness month when many organizations put a pink face on all manner of things. My disdain for pinkification in lieu of more tangible support for women and women's issues will have to be a topic for another day, but I write today to declare the following. Roger Goodell must resign or be fired before October 1st or I'm breaking up with professional football. Anyone who's known me for more than a cup of coffee has heard me say that I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan by birth and grace of almighty benevolent God, and by extension knows that this is not an easy decision for me. I love this game. However, I cannot embrace professional football during a month when they put pink on everything, while I still employ a chief executive who is either a liar, grossly incompetent on the subject of domestic violence, or most likely both. I will no longer watch games. I will cancel the cable package and place all paraphernalia in storage. A one-person protest will not speak to the captains of the universe who run the sport, but this is my only recourse. I'm not suggesting that domestic violence problems in the National Football, uh, National Football League are new to me. I've seen them. This week's activities, however, are too sordid, too unseemly, too incompetent even by the spectacularly low standards of prior conduct for the NFL. So yes, Roger Goodell must go. If he loves the game as he says he does, he would resign for the betterment of the game. And if the owners are smart, purely a business and PR decision, they would fire him. Either way, come October 1st, if he still has a job, I'm done with the NFL. So that's what I wrote. And I stopped watching games that day. October 1st, 2014. Wow, thank you so much for that, Danny. That is a very powerful take. Yes, we've talked about this on episodes past. People can listen to back episodes at edgesportspodcast.com, both about Roger Goodell's unfitness for his job as well as the pinkwashing of domestic violence in the National Football League and how that operates through their partnership with the Susan G. Komen Foundation. I do have to say this, Roger Goodell gone, I don't see it happening. But I know a lot of people who think just like you and think that if Roger Goodell is there, they're done. Because he's just that bad. Hi, this is Sabina Kazi. I just want to tell you I love your podcast. I'm responding to your question about people who are former football fans. I am a graduate of the University of Florida, and I was there during the Steve Spurrier era. So um, football was a huge deal on our campus. And I actually tutored college athletes. And that was really my first inkling Um, and talking to the athletes about what a completely messed up system the NCAA is. I really can't stomach watching college sports anymore, or even pro football. And it's kind of sad because I do love my school and I do love the SEC, but I I can't get behind what it stands for or what what they do uh, to young people. Uh, Anyway, thank you so much and keep up the good work. Bye-bye. Wow, Sabina, thank you so much for that call. I'm sure you have some stories uh, having gone to the University of Florida during the Steve Spurrier era. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to keep covering the way the NCAA operates and the way college football operates no matter what. I mean, even if every single one of my listeners has decided to boycott this sport, I'm still going to cover it from a political lens because I don't think you can speak about the language of sports and politics in the United States without addressing football. But thank you again so much for that call, Sabina. Hey, this is Mark. Yes, my interest is waning. Um, I have to admit part of it is because I have young kids and being busy with them is uh, taking my attention away from the, the sports I love. But I'm telling you, it's, it's much, much easier than it used to be to ignore football. I mean, it was hard to ignore it. Knowing what happened in the game and knowing what's going on with the teams is something that I used to follow and I used to love. And I guess I still love it, but I just I just can't follow it like I used to. Um, and having kids, I mean, I always imagined watching sports, especially football with my kids, but I'm not sure if they, I really want them to follow it. I mean, I, I teach them the rules, but it's not a focus like it used to be. So, um, I mean, there's the whole 
concussion and player safety issue, not to mention the, um, the advertisements. That's one thing that I want to, you know, keep my kids from because, you know, advertising in general and advertising to kids is, you know, damaging. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely have had, had the urge to ignore football. Another thing I wanted to mention was um, the column you did, and, and at the end part of the last podcast, you talked about uh, journalism. That's a deep topic in general, but sports too, because our reality is created by the media that we see, and journalists have a big part of that. So it's a conversation that I know you definitely try to open people's eyes up about, but um, yeah, keep bringing that to the forefront. Keep bringing that to our attention so that we can understand reality in ways that uh, make the world a better place. Hey, Dave, thanks for all the work that you do, and um, I appreciate everything. Mark, thanks so much for that call. It actually is really fortuitous that we're playing that call on this week's show because a big thing we're talking about this week is the disinformation campaign around Colin Kaepernick. And again, there's a difference between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is mistakes, rumors. It's largely benign. Disinformation means an actual coordinated media campaign to change the way people think about someone or something. There is a disinformation campaign about Colin Kaepernick, and if we don't push back on it, it becomes accepted, it becomes normalized, and that actually has a ripple effect far beyond Colin Kaepernick. And what you said about kids, I feel that, and I live that, and it's a real issue. I really, really do wish we had sports in this country a la carte without the parts of it that are truly damaging to people coming up and trying to learn what's good about athletics and about play. Hey, Dave. My name is Darius. I'm in the D.C. area. I've been listening to your show since the November election. Heard about you on Best of the Left calling in response to your question about the NFL and if I'm going to keep being a fan. I've actually been thinking about that for the last few weeks. I've been concerned with uh, the growing accounts of domestic violence and um, there was an article someone posted on Facebook about how even those guys can get jobs even you know after the dog fighting fiasco um, Michael Vick was able to get work uh, but Colin Kaepernick has not been signed yet for inspiring a young generation to do nonviolent protests. Um, and it has just really bothered me. And I don't know if I can keep being a fan, which is really sad because I started out really loving the NBA, watching that, and then I started watching the NFL about four years ago, and I've really come to love the game. And I also have concerns about not being an NFL fan because it is one of the few arenas where black men are in leadership positions as coaches and they have influence. And it's also a main way for a lot of young men of color to get out of the ghetto, frankly, still. Um, it's one of the few positive routes. And, um, I don't know if it's helpful to stop supporting that aspect as well. Um, so I don't know what I'm going to do, man. I'm really conflicted about it. I'm actually a little embarrassed about how emotionally wrapped up I am in this particular decision. Um, so I'm glad you asked the question, and I don't know. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Thank you so much for that call, Dayrees. The thing that really stands out to me that I want to share is that you feeling really wrapped up about this is not unusual. I speak to people a lot who, and that's why I asked the question in the first place, who are truly troubled about whether or not to be NFL fans. And it runs a lot deeper than just, gee, do I watch this game? Because for so many of us, it's a place of community. It's a place of friendship. It's what we text our friends about. It's a real point of cohesion. I mean, I have neighbors who I really like. And the NFL is all I talk to them about. That's it. How's their team doing? How's this doing? How's that doing? And in recent years, the discussion has shifted a little bit to talking about issues like concussions and sexual assault and domestic violence. And that leads to a much deeper discussion. And I have no problem having that discussion, but it inevitably raises the question of, why do we watch this? I know a lot of folks who've already made the move to say that they're not watching anymore are just wondering about all of us who are still trying to figure it out. And all I would say is is that it runs a lot deeper than just saying, this is a bad product, I'm going to turn it off.
Thank you so much to everybody for your calls. Thank you so much, everyone out there in Edge of Sportsland for your calls. Got another question for next week. Please call in 401-426-3343, 401-426-EDGE. I would love to know, are you watching these NBA playoffs? Yes or no? I'm really curious because for me, it's a night-by-night obsession. For a lot of people I know, the games have not been competitive. The series have not been interesting. They think it's just a wash, that it's going to end up with uh, Cleveland versus Golden State. So who really cares? So I want to know from you, why or why not? Are you watching these NBA playoffs? 401-426-3343, 401-426-EDGE. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much to my co-producers, Daniel Baker and David Tigabu. Thank you, David Tigabu, for doing double duty on the Nigel Hayes read. Thank you so much to Professor Lewis Moore, such an incredible stand-up guy. Thank you to Colin Kaepernick and everybody with the Know Your Rights team for allowing me to really, really take in the day at Know Your Rights Camp. If people want to know more about Know Your Rights, there will be a link in the description of this podcast. To everybody out there, please, if you like the show, Give the thing a rating. Please, if you like the show, write a little comment in the reviews at iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast app of choice. Please tell a friend. All of that makes a huge difference. I'm Dave Zirin. Stay frosty, people. We are out of here. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.